All right, before we move into the sermon, I just want to lead us in prayer for a moment. Uh, the first part of this prayer is an adapted prayer uh, from a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a, a collection of prayers and poems written by the Puritans. So I'm going to lead us in prayer, and as we, as I pray, just have a posture of prayer before the Lord, before we prepare to hear the Word of God. Let us pray. Lord, to you we look for grace upon grace, until every void made by sin be replenished, and we are filled with all your fullness. May our desires be enlarged and our hopes emboldened that we may honor you with our entire dependency and the greatness of our expectation. Be with us and prepare us for all the smiles of prosperity, the frowns of adversity, the losses of substance, the death of friends, the days of darkness, the changes of life, and the last great change of all. May we find your grace sufficient for all, all our needs. Father, that is our hope. Because death has been arrested, your grace is sufficient in every part of life, in the seasons that are high, in the valleys that are low. God, I pray that you would help us with open hearts receive your word that we would sit under the authority of your word and it would prepare us for all the things that we face in this life, all the joys and all the difficulties, that we'd be a people that are led and formed and shaped by your word. So Lord, help us receive it so that we may be able to walk out your teachings in faith and in repentance and in worship and in delighting in you, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Isaac Hill is going to be preaching uh, today. Uh, Isaac has been an elder in training uh, in our church for the last almost three years. Uh, we take eldership uh, slowly, so we have uh, elders, pastors, overseers, we kind of use that all interchangeably, uh, and there are four of us, and Isaac has been preparing to be a fifth elder here over the last few years. There are different parts that go into that, uh, that go into being an elder in the training process from the different responsibilities that he would oversee to the different things that he's uh, leading in. He's also on staff here. He oversees Kid City, he oversees uh, facilities, he oversees a lot of things <laughs> in this church. So the past three years is, is training and equipping uh, for the, the call of being a pastor, and one of those is preaching. Um, so this is Isaac's first sermon, and uh, we're excited to be able to hear from him. So Isaac, take it away. Yes, good morning. Uh, as he said, my name is Isaac, and uh, I have been on staff here for the past three years. It has been fun and a joy to be able to serve and lead with our, our kids' ministry and our students' ministry, um, primarily, as most of my responsibilities fall. Um, and as Spencer said, for the past three years, I've been an elder in training and been discerning the call towards pastoral leadership. And uh, this opportunity before you this morning to teach is one of those discerning moments uh, to be able to know uh, whether or not God is calling me to, to leadership. Um, 
We have just finished, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you'll know that we just finished up a sermon series in the book of Exodus, and I know some of you are rejoicing in your heads because you've been looking forward to the end of that, and that's always good to end something and be able to go and start something new. And next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series called Theology of Sex Plus, um, and uh, several years ago, we got to do a series very similar to it, and our culture has only become more confused uh, and, and more lost in terms of the realities of what Scripture teaches on the ideas of sex and sexuality. So uh, if you're new, you should stick around. It's going to be a great series um, for several weeks to be able to walk through what the Bible has to say uh, in relation to what our culture teaches. But today is just a standalone sermon. It is just uh, all by itself, and so I'm looking forward to it. When Spencer several months ago uh, asked me about this opportunity to teach, he said, hey, you can pick anything you want from, you know, Genesis to Revelation. And I was like, ooh, that kind of feels intimidating. There's a lot of verses you could pick from that you do. So I went to him. I said, hey, you're in charge of the teaching calendar. Why don't you pick a couple different passages, um, and I'll choose one that I think would, would I'd be able to teach well. And I realized that I had maybe made a mistake because I'd given Spencer the opportunity to choose for me which passage I would be teaching. And we could be studying right after Exodus in the book of Leviticus, but <laughs> thankfully this morning, we get to study uh, in the book of Romans. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 in the first 11 verses this morning. So uh, you can turn there if you have a blue Bible, which are in the, uh, underneath the seats, then that'll be on page 550. Uh, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you have faith in Jesus, I'm sure that there have been times in your walk when you have felt stuck in sin. When you have felt defeated by your sin, maybe you have felt stuck in a cycle of trying to figure it out on your own and then, and then falling short and failing and then feeling guilty and overwhelmed with shame. And this morning, what we're going to look at is we're going to see how Paul encourages the church and the reality that the Spirit of God dwells in us and is the power by which our sin and our brokenness is conquered and defeated. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray that you would um, be speaking and teaching through your word. And as uh, you teach, would you teach us your truth, and would your truth be setting us free, free from our sin, free from our brokenness, and may we have life in Christ. Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to listen to what your spirit would have for us? Amen. Now, before we jump into verse 1, uh, anytime you are reading Scripture, it is important to read it within its context. And uh, we're jumping right into the middle of the book of Romans, so it's important to have uh, some context. And so we're going to kind of look a little bit of the historical context of the time, and then we'll look at a little bit of the textual context. And so Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Uh, so there's, this letter is written to people who are following Jesus. And in this church in Rome, there uh, were, were two groups of people. There were the Jews who had come to faith in Jesus, 
And there were the Gentiles who had come to faith in Jesus. And Gentiles were just non-Jews. And Jews were just people who were of the lineage of, of Abraham, you know, the people of Israel that we just spent so much time studying in the book of Exodus. And so the, the Jews, they would have come with this, this historical background of uh, the law that we looked at when we were in the series of Exodus. They would have probably been a little bit stuck up and prideful about this reality that they were, you know, the chosen people. And then you had the Gentiles, and they wouldn't have known diddly squat about what the Jews were talking about. And uh, they would have come from a place of worshiping whatever gods were there in the Roman Empire, whether that be Apollo or whether that be Jupiter or Mars or Venus. They apparently were really into their planets. But as I was looking into it, there's no God for Pluto. So I guess they got the memo early on about what was going to happen to him. So, <laughs> uh, But so there's these two groups of people and there's some tension in terms of they, they now have faith in Jesus, but they're coming from two different backgrounds as to how to approach this. One has the law, one has no idea what that's about. And so this book of Romans is known as Paul's most complete uh, source of his theology, his understanding of what God's redemptive plan is. It's a beautiful book. It's super dense, and we're jumping right into the middle of it. So I'm going to try to give uh, a quick recap of what Paul has talked about for the first seven uh, chapters, and we could be here all day just talking about the first seven chapters, but I'll try to just hit the highlights. And so, so far, what Paul has talked about is first he's highlighted the, the human condition, that you and I are broken and sinful and hopeless. And apart from Christ, that's who we are. And then he talks about the reality that the chosen people of God, the Israelites, that he had called to work his purpose, he had given them the law, but the law couldn't save them. If you remember in the series of Exodus, it didn't take them long at all to fail, and that's our story too, that no rules, no amount of regulations, no amount of laws saves you and I. Paul actually says that the law was given to reveal to them their brokenness so that they might know that they have a need for a Savior for Jesus. And then rooted in all of Paul's letters, but especially here in Romans, is this idea that it is justification, that we are justified by faith, not by works. That is the power of Jesus, the grace of God through the power of Jesus to rescue us from our sin and brokenness, to save us from our sin and brokenness because of our faith, not because of our efforts. So this is the backdrop that we are stepping into as we begin to read in Romans chapter 8. So let's begin in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an amazing verse to start off with this morning. What a powerful verse. What Paul has just said is that if you are in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, then you are not condemned. Or in other words, you are not guilty. How many here have ever been overwhelmed by guilt and shame? Absolutely. In Christ, you are not guilty. How amazing, how beautiful. And the reality is, is that's probably encouraging enough that we could be empowered to leave here right now with that truth. We'd be done. Shortest sermon ever, seven minutes, 57 seconds. <laughs> uh, but we might have some questions. How? How is it that we aren't guilty? And what does this mean for my life? How does this affect my life? Well, 
if you could guess, Paul is going to tell us. So let's read on. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what Paul says, the the short answer to how is it that I'm not guilty? The short answer is the gospel of Jesus. But he's going to outline what that gospel, what that good news of what Jesus has done is. So in Christ, the spirit, the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Remember the context of what Paul is talking about. The law, the the sin in us uses the law to bring condemnation upon us because we can't live up to it. That's just the reality. But the Spirit of God in Christ has set us free from that condemnation. And how could that be other than Jesus, right? By sending his own son, that's Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That beautiful reality and and kind of mystery about how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That he comes in the form of flesh just like you and I have, hands and feet and legs and all that. He comes in that. And why does he do that? He comes for sin. He comes to deal with the evil that has been messing with you and I that we have not been able to overcome so that it could be condemned, right? That's what he says, so that it could be condemned in the flesh, that at the cross of Jesus, sin is counted guilty, not us. That is the gospel message of Jesus, that at the cross, sin is counted as guilty because of Jesus, not us, for those who walk in faith. But the cross does even more than that. In verse 4, it says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The cross doesn't just give us a clean slate. The cross isn't just a judge who bangs the gavel and says, All right, you're free to go. The cross gives us the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' standing before the Father is given to us, to our account. (laughs) What? How amazing. How wonderful. And Paul ends this. He says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Paul's about to spend some time juxtaposing the difference between the life that is, that is living in the flesh and the life that is transformed by the gospel of Jesus and living in the spirit. So let's continue on down into verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I think it's helpful that uh, Paul uses the the very basic reality of, of what we set our mind on 
what our thoughts are consumed with reveals to us our motivation, reveals to us our, our drive for living, right? He says, you set your mind on the flesh, you'll, you'll live according to the flesh. If you set your mind on the spirit, you'll live according to the spirit. And, and we understand this on a very basic level, right? We've all been there. Long day of work, four or five o'clock rolls around, your stomach starts to growl, you're a little hungry. Maybe your taste buds are a little more expensive than your wallet, so you're dreaming about like a steak dinner. It's going to be nice. But you know that there's a McDonald's on the way from home, so you kind of settle for that. But, and it's simple. You set your mind on dinner, and then you're motivated. You go get dinner. And it's basic, and it plays itself out, though, in, in more real, more deeper ways of life. I don't know about you, but I don't like driving on the road with other people. The year of COVID was amazing because there was nobody on the road, and you could just drive however you wanted to. But now there's all these people out there that you're driving around. And uh, for me, my commute every day, uh, I have to drive 26 and 20, and sometimes 126, or have to cut through downtown, whichever makes most sense that day. So I have to drive in the middle of Malfunction Junction every single day. And as you're driving, it's important to set your mind on the road. It's important to pay attention. But what I set my mind on most often when I'm driving is all the little annoying things that all those other people who are on the road are doing, right? Oh, you're going to break that hard? Don't you know that I'm behind you? You want me to rear-end you? Or Come on, man. Oh, you're going to cut me off. <laughs> you're more important than me. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, you're going to speed up now, right? <laughs> right? All these thoughts. And my, and my mind begins to be focused. My mind is consumed with all these annoying things that people are doing. Well, what begins to happen? When my hands grip the steering wheel a little tighter, and my tongue begins, begins to get a little looser, <laughs> and I begin to say things that I would be too afraid to say if they were actually face-to-face to me, but, you know, I'm in my car, so it's safe enough to say it about them. <laughs> but and maybe, that, maybe that resonates with you, that, that idea of that, that driving and, and being consumed with the thoughts of other people, and it, and it plays itself out in nasty ways. But the reality is that, that it can be anywhere in life, anything in life. Maybe for you, it's your work. Your mind is constantly set on your work and what you can achieve. So that becomes your motivation. Work is your motivation for life. Maybe in work, it's like a promotion or a new job opportunity. It becomes the thing that your mind is consumed with. And so it becomes your motivation. It becomes what you live for. Maybe for you, it's relationships or maybe the lack of relationships. That your mind is, is set on that becomes your motivation. Everything you do is, is driven out of this reality that you just want that. Maybe for you, it's just the stuff of life. It's your house, the boat, the cool tools. I don't know. I like tools. I'm a tool guy. Maybe for you, it's the stuff you don't have, the house you don't have, whatever it might be. That your mind is set on it. When your mind is set and consumed with it, it becomes your motivation becomes the thing that drives all your actions. Maybe for you it's vacations or simply the weekend, the absence of work. Monday at 8 rolls around and you're already thinking about Friday at 5. It's your mind is set and consumed with that thing that you could get and it becomes your purpose. It becomes what you live for. Now, what Paul is saying here, I don't think he's saying that if you set your mind on these things, that you won't get them. Because the reality is, is that it's not true. There are people right now, this very minute, who are sitting on a yacht somewhere in some lake or ocean or something, drinking some beverage. 
I'm not an alcohol guy. I don't know what there is. I think there's one with like orange juice and some other stuff. I don't know. <laughs> you could chase this stuff. You could go after the promotion. You could go after the new job. But you might get it. You go after the you go after the girl. You could win her over. You could live life with her. You could chase after the big house. You get it. Uh, the weekend's coming no matter what. So if you live for the weekend, you'll get it. <laughs> Paul isn't saying that you won't get those things. Paul is saying that those things don't have life. He actually says those things only produce death within you. That absent of Christ, those, those things offer you nothing. The reality is, is that God is the source of everything that is good and everything that is wonderful, everything that's beautiful. He is the source of life. And if your mind and motivation is set on anything other than him, what can you get but the absence of life? And what is the absence of life but death? Jesus puts it this way. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about the physical reality of your life. It's not that he doesn't care about your work or your relationships or the stuff. It's that he knows what's important and he knows where life is. And he wants life for you. And it's found in him. And more so, Paul said, if you set your mind on the spirit, the, re the reality of what God has been doing, that redemptive plan that God has been working out, he says, if you set your mind on that, there is life there. And he also puts, I uh, it's so cool when these little things come up. There's life and peace. There's peace. Well, then it doesn't matter what job you have. It doesn't matter if you get the promotion or not. You have peace. You have peace. It doesn't matter if you have the wonderful wife and the wonderful kids. If life plans out, goes out the way you planned, well, you have peace. It doesn't matter if you have the fancy house or you live in a trailer. You have peace. Peace with God. Now, Paul has just explained as he has just explained the gospel. The good news of what Jesus has come to do. That in this world, there is a way of sin and death. And in this world, there's a way of life and peace. And on our own, we're stuck. You and I, by ourselves, well, we just mess it up. We miss the mark every time. But thanks to Jesus for what he has done, there is in his spirit life and peace. Now, Paul is about to turn in the next verse, and he's about to specifically address the church. Now, remember, contextually, this is a church in Rome, and you have to be careful uh, placing yourself in the, the reader's perspective. But I don't, reading this in context, I don't think there's any reason why what he's about to say doesn't specifically apply to us church family, okay? We're a church. I don't know if you know this, but we're a church, church family. So what he's about to say, he's going to say, and, and we're going to read it as if he's saying it to us. Picking back up in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So what Paul just said is, church family, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. You are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. You are in the one who gives life and peace. Now, he caveats it. He says, if the spirit of God really dwells in you, the spirit of God is in you, church family. (laughs) You are in Christ. You live by faith. That is your reality. Now, Paul is not naive, right? In verse 10, he says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. Now, Paul knows that he's broken. But read Paul's letters. He knows he's broken. He calls himself the chief of sinners. He knows that you and I still have this flesh that causes us to sin, that causes us to miss the mark. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Jesus' righteousness. That's what he just said earlier. That the righteousness that Jesus has is given to us, to our account, and in that is life as the Spirit of God dwells in us. This is the journey of faith. Yes, faith is a moment when you decide to follow Jesus, and it's beautiful. But faith is a life. Faith is every day. Saying, Jesus, I can't do this. On my own, I just want to chase after the things that this world offers. That's all I can do. But, but Jesus, you have saved me, and you bring life. Would you work in me through your spirit? That's the life of faith. I can remember being a, a young Christian in high school and, and just being defeated by sin, being absolutely consumed by sin. And I was caught in that cycle of, of messing up and then just feeling guilty and ashamed. And then it was like, okay, I've got to figure it out this time. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to buckle down. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm just going to go get it. If you know me, it makes sense that that's my personality. That, that that's what it was, but, but then I mess up again because that's who I am. And then I feel guilty and feel shame. And then I try again. And it wasn't until freshman year of college, thanks to the grace of God through, through his word and through uh, a community of believers that I was around, began to understand this reality of faith is trusting in Jesus every day and every moment and every situation of Jesus, you can do this. On my own, I am dead, but you have given me life. In verse 11, he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Paul reminds us of our future hope. Yes, we have a flesh that's sinful, and this flesh will die. But the truth is, is that just as Jesus has been raised from the dead, you and I who are in Christ will be raised from the dead, and we'll have new bodies. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But what I want to focus on is what he finishes with. 
He says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Four times in the last four sentences, Paul has said that God dwells in you. He either said Christ dwells in you or he said the spirit dwells in you. And anytime you're reading in scripture and you come across repetition, it should, it, your, your ear should poke up. There should be a little radar that goes off in your head. Beep, beep, beep. Like, this is important. Pay attention. And if you've been paying attention as we've been reading throughout this whole passage, you'll, you'll have noticed this pattern of, of us being in something or, or something being in us. That there's, there's something going on here that Paul is talking about. And as I was reflecting on this, uh, it, it brought to mind the story of Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, when, when he uses the imagery of vine and branches. Now, when I was younger and I used to hear anybody teach on this idea of Jesus saying that he was the vine, uh, Growing up pretty much all my life in South Carolina, the only vines that we have around here are like poison ivy and, and poison oak and like kudzu, like these super invasive vines that just take over. And I'm always like, why is he comparing himself to a vine? There's more beautiful things than that, right? But I, I have a picture for it. I found a picture of a grapevine, which I think would be more true to what Jesus would have been referring to and to what his original readers would have thought of. And you can see this main trunk that's rooted in, in the ground. That's the vine. So Jesus is saying, that's him. And then you can see all the branches that are growing around up top. And that's us. And you can see, of course, obviously it's time to harvest because there are some beautiful grapes. And Jesus thought that this was a good image to talk about the idea of being in him and him and us. So I figured we could look at it and we could use this image as well. Now, the branch here doesn't, when it's time to produce grapes, doesn't hop off the vine, scurry along the ground, forage for some grapes somewhere that have kind of fallen off in the wayside, tuck it into its leaf pockets, come back, try to shimmy its way onto the vine. <laughs> it's silly, because that's not how it works. And it's not how it works for us in Jesus either. Jesus doesn't say, all right, time to go find some grapes that have rolled down over into the grass over there. No. Jesus said, abide in me, and I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Faith binds us to Jesus, that we trust in him every day, and that is the way in which good fruit, that is the way in which the life comes to us. What Paul is saying is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that raised the God of the universe who came to bear the full weight of sin, raised him from the dead, that spirit, that same glory and might and power and majesty, it dwells within you and it dwells within me. How amazing. As I was Preparing for this and reading a couple commentaries, there was a sentence that really stuck out. Uh, it was by this author named John Knox. Uh, he was a part of, I think it was the, the 16th century. Don't quote me on that. I think it was 16th century. He was a part of helping uh, bring reformation to the Scottish church of returning to biblical authority and, and submission to, to God. And uh, he wrote a commentary on Romans, and this is what he has to say. It'll be up on the screen. Paul characteristically thinks of the ethical life as the fruit 
of the Spirit. Not the achievement of moral effort, but the inevitable expression of the new spiritual life. Let me read that one more time. Paul characteristically thinks of the ethical life as the fruit of the Spirit. Not the achievement of moral effort, but the inevitable expression of the new spiritual life. So as this author is reflecting on, he's really reflecting on all of Paul's writing, but as it's coming up here and he's realizing this idea of being in the Spirit, in the Spirit in us, he says when Paul thinks about the ethical life, or when Paul thinks about the good life, when Paul thinks about when we are living in the right versus the wrong, when Paul thinks about the ability to overcome the sin and the brokenness, he does not think about your ability to save yourself. He does not think about your strength. He thinks about the Spirit of God dwelling in you and producing life. He says it's the inevitable expression that is the promise of Jesus. As we remain in him in faith, he remains in us and produces life, produces good fruit. And what are the fruit of the Spirit? I know we've got some kids, city kids in here. We've got a song to sing. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we are to look at this list, how many of us here don't want more of that in our lives? How beautiful this is. How life-giving these are. In church family, this is the product of the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. You don't go figure these out. You say, Jesus, I can't. But your spirit dwells within me and produces in me life. In your marriage, don't you want more love and patience? <laughs> in your work, don't you want joy and kindness among your coworkers? In the simple things of driving, don't you wish you had peace and self-control? Oh boy, don't I wish I had peace and self-control. In your community groups, don't you wish that you were all faithful, more faithful to the work of Jesus, more loving towards one another? These wonderful, beautiful things. What Paul is saying is that this life is ours in Christ because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Church family, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And that is the power and the only power by which life is produced in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Jesus and the work that he has done for us on our behalf. We thank you that his righteousness is given to our account we thank you for the Spirit of God that dwells in us and produces life. Our prayer is that as we go about every day, 
that we would not think that you have called us to figure this out on our own, but you have simply called us to respond in faith, trusting that Jesus can do it because we can't. We come before you now once again, and we worship you for all that you have done. Amen. The band's going to come back up, and we're going to continue to sing and worship this King who has set us free and who has given us life.